0: Because when Jesus was speaking, he was God on earth speaking to us. Yes, those are his words, but so are the words in the Old Testament when the prophets said, thus saith the Lord. This is season 11 of Guerrilla Christianity. My name is Pastor Brett Walker, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Guerrilla Christianity, an unconventional, no-apologies exposition of God's grace from an Orthodox Wesleyan point of view. God's Holy Word is essential to our teaching, so let's get into God's Word right now. And I would invite you to take out your Bibles, either the ones that you brought with you or the ones in the pews, and turn in them with me to the book of Mark, chapter 9. We've been in Mark chapter 1 for so long. We almost forgot there were other chapters to Mark. But we're going to be in chapter 9 today, verses 2 through uh, 9. Today we conclude our Epiphany series called Following Christ. We've been looking throughout the season of Epiphany what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so in the first week we talked about how we answered the invitation Christ invites us to come and see. Um, We even saw how uh, one of the disciples went out and found another gentleman and that gentleman said, I I don't believe that this is possible. And his response was, come and see, come and see for yourself. Uh, in, In the second week, we talked about answering the call, how Jesus went and he called the fishermen, and he called them from their work into god's work and they went from being fishermen to being fishers of men or fishers of people and so we too are still fishing for people as it were week three we talked about how jesus taught with authority he cast out demons and he spoke authoritatively on scripture because he is the authority he is the author of the Word of God and so everything that's in the Bible is his word as well uh, last week we looked at how Christ prays and we said how can we pray like Christ uh, early in the day alone with God making prayer a priority and seeking God's will and the strength to do what he calls us to do this week we are concluding with the vision of jesus in all of his splendor we call it the transfiguration it is the sunday before uh, the season of lent begins and so it is transfiguration sunday let us hear now the word of the lord for us uh, mark chapter 9 verses 2 through 9 and after six days jesus taketh with him peter and james and john and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. And as he came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you for instruction, for knowledge, for wisdom, that we may know you more and follow you more closely. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we may see the glory of your holy word, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Teacher. Amen. There is a movement in the church. Um, it actually began, well, it began more than 50 years ago, but it's really started to take off in the last 50 years or so. <clears throat> and that movement is uh, euphemistically called Red Letter Christianity. Maybe you've heard of it. Red Letter Christianity. What it And what it means to be a red letter Christian is that you pay particular attention to the red letters in the Bible. Now, most of my Bibles honestly do not have red letters in them, but this particular one does. Um, This is the one that I teach from in the pulpit, and you can see that there are red letters in there. Um, The red letters are the words of Christ. In fact, on the spine of the Bible, it says words of Christ in red. Now why would they do this? Well the thought was that they would emphasize the words that Jesus spoke so that we could read them and know what he was saying specifically um, and to differentiate his words from the rest of the Bible. Honestly, I, when I first became a Christian I appreciated a red letter Bible and I thought it was better to have that. Now. As I've matured in my faith not so much because it's not that it's not that it detracts from the scriptures but what it does is it says that these words that are in red are more important than the others that are not and that is not true every single word in the Bible is the Word of God Because when Jesus was speaking, he was God on earth speaking to us. Yes, those are his words, but so are the words in the Old Testament when the prophets said, thus saith the Lord. Why aren't those words in red? Because we've considered that these are the words of Jesus and we are Christians and so we should listen to these words. Um, Well, I mean, it's a good thought. But again, every single word of scripture is the word of God, not just the red letters. Um, I got into a discussion this week. You know, my wife always tells me, don't respond to those people on Facebook. You know, I see something that I disagree with and I have to say something. Um, But this is a, a Methodist clergy group and it's a closed group. So I figured it's probably not going to go any farther than this. Um, but one of the clergy members had posted an article that they had written. It was very well uh, researched, and it was very well written, and to my mind, 100% wrong. Because their assertion was, in this reading from the Transfiguration, what we learn is that when Jesus speaks, if his words contradict the rest of scripture that we should listen to him now on the surface that sounds like yeah we should probably do that but the reality is number one jesus never contradicted scripture there's nowhere that jesus says one thing and the scripture tells us something else okay now where this discussion grew from is really the, the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, there are places where Jesus says, you know, it, you have heard that it was said, for example, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, but I say to you that if your enemy strikes you on the one cheek, turn to him the other. You know? And so he was saying to be a purveyor of peace. Um, now, That is not a contradiction of Old Testament scripture, okay? Notice he says, you have heard that it was said. Whenever he's speaking about things that are written in the scriptures, he uses the words, it is written, okay? It is written. It was written down uh, by people. It was given by inspiration of God to someone to write down for our edification so that we can know God better um, either through divine uh, and direct revelation as in a prophet speaking thus saith the Lord that would that that's a direct revelation from God or it could be an inspired word in recording a historical event and particular details that God wants us to know either way it is the inspired word of God and so, God, so Jesus, as the second person of the triune head, could not contradict that which God has already spoken, right? Uh, God can't contradict himself. And so he says, it is written. And those things he gives great credence to. But when he says, you have heard that it was said, what he's talking about there is the oral tradition, The oral tradition, which is the tradition of men coming up with more rules and regulations to build around the law of God so that we don't approach the law of God. For example, uh, the Sabbath rule, which said the Sabbath law says, you know, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall do all your labor, while on the seventh day is, is a day that is holy unto the Lord. On it you shall do no work, neither you nor your uh, nor your children, nor your servants, nor your animals, anything, right? Well, that's the law of God. But then the oral tradition came up and said, well, if we're not supposed to do any work on, on the Sabbath day, let's not do anything that even looks like work. And so they had they made up s- silly laws really, things like And the the example I always point to in the Mishnah is, you know, if your house is burning down and it happens to be the Sabbath, what do you do? You can't run in and grab all your stuff and and bring it out, right? That would be considered work. But what you can do hmm, is strip down naked and walk into the house and put on clothes and walk out of the house and strip down naked and walk into the house, and that's not considered work. See how silly that is? That's that's man trying to build a hedge around the law of God so that we don't approach it, right? And so when when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he's talking about the oral tradition, which is not scripture. It is not inspired. It is just people trying to make up rules so that we don't somehow accidentally uh, violate the law of God. All right. So, um, that was the discussion that I had this week. Uh, The the gentleman who was, again, very well researched, very well read, and very well written uh, article, but his, his conclusion was that when Jesus speaks, if he contradicts the scriptures, then we listen to him. But Jesus doesn't contradict the scriptures. That's what I was trying to say. That he, nowhere does Jesus contradict what the Bible actually says, because he couldn't. God cannot contradict himself. So anyway, we've been going verse by verse through um, the first chapter of Mark. Now we leap ahead to chapter 9, so let's real quick uh, look at what the uh, context is of what we read today in this transfiguration. All three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all present the transfiguration in the same order, beginning with Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. If you look up at verse 27, chapter 8, it says, Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? Now remember, his His ministry is centered right now in Capernaum uh, and Bethsaida. Um, Now, to get from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi is a 32-mile journey by foot. No Ubers, just walking, right? So they're walking 32 miles. Guess what? They got lots of time to talk. And so on the way, Jesus says... Whom do men say that I am? And they answered John the Baptist, but some say Elias and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, but, but, whom say ye? What do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and saith unto him, thou art the Christ. You're the anointed one of God. In the other gospels, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God and he charged them that they should tell no man of him because the world is not ready yet, okay? We understand because we're on this side of, uh, we're on this side of the resurrection, we're on this side of the crucifixion, we're on this side of his dying and raising again. But they hadn't lived through that yet. And so he says, don't tell anyone. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Now the same person who just said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, now says, Jesus, don't tell people you're going to be dying. Nobody's going to follow a dead man. Nobody's going to follow someone that they know is going to die. Don't tell people that, even if it's going to happen. Don't tell anybody. But when he turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. In other words, he's saying, you're not putting your your eyes on the things of heaven. You're looking at the... I'm looking at my ministry through the eyes of God. You're looking at my ministry through the eyes of men. And so... Um, he rebuked him. The very same person who said, you are the Christ now, gets, and get behind me, Satan, right? Highs and lows, that's what Peter gets. So, <clears throat> verse 34. Uh, verse 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Again, taking up the cross is a foreign concept to these people because they haven't seen it yet. They understand what a cross is. A cross is an implement of execution. And what Jesus is saying is put to death that, that worldly part of you, that sinful part of you, and follow me. Do as I do. You know, and Jesus was a great shepherd because he led by example. He went before his flock and they followed him. For, he says, verse 35, for whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And what he's saying is, you know, what in the world can you possibly sell your eternal soul for? You know, would you sell one of your eyes for a million dollars? You know, I wouldn't because I like seeing, you know, and I, I, and I don't know that I would be able to part with that. In fact, so much so that uh, those who were blind were coming to Jesus and asking to be healed to have their sight restored to them because our sight is precious because we can see the beauty of God's world all around us. You know, uh, I, it's bad for people who, who have no sight. I have my sight. I won't sell one of my eyes for $10, for $10 million, not for $100 million, not, and certainly not both of my eyes because then I couldn't see anything. And if my eyes were so precious to me, what about my eternal soul? What about my eternal spirit that lives forever? Do I want to live with God in his eternal glory and splendor? Yes, I do. And that's what he's saying here. What shall a man give in exchange for a soul? Then he says, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also the Son of Man shall be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then finally he says, Verily I say unto you, verse nine, ver- chapter 9, verse 1, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. There's people standing right here in our midst who will not see death until they see the, king, the kingdom of God coming in power and glory. And, and this is true. And it goes right into the next verse. Verse 2, six days after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, Peter, James, and John, by the way, these are the three disciples who are closest to Jesus and they're later leaders in the church. In fact, Peter talks about this exact event in his second epistle when he writes, For, he, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He's saying, I'm not telling you what a friend of a friend of a friend saw. I'm telling you what I saw and heard with my own eyes and ears. And this is such an impactful event in the life of the disciples that Peter had to write about it. John wrote about it. We'll get into that in just a minute. And all of the, uh, the gospel writers here are also recording this for us and recording it for us in the same order. And I think that's because this is a very pivotal event. This is the event where Jesus goes from declaring himself showing himself, revealing himself, and now he begins that, that march towards Jerusalem, towards Calvary, towards the cross. This is the pivotal point that begins his march to the crucifixion. So it says, He took with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart, by themselves high mountain both Moses and Elijah had mountaintop experiences with God Moses had experiences both at Horeb and Sinai and Elijah at Carmel and Horeb Caesarea Philippi as I said before is 32 miles north of Bethsaida and it's right at the foot of Mount Hermon now Mount Hermon is not a huge mountain but it's definitely an imposing mountain when all the rest of the landscape is very flat mount herman stretches up about nine thousand feet and so we're not talking about a, a little hike up the side of this mountain we're talking about a major trek all right and but he, he he takes them up to elevate them to bring them close to where god is now god is everywhere but god meets people on these mountaintops because when you're way up you could see everything you know in uh verse 3 verse 3 his raiment became i'm sorry the end of verse 2 going into 3 he was transfigured before him that word transfigured is metamorpho which is where we get our word metamorphosis from okay so he was transfigured his whole appearance changed his raiment his clothing became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. I love that description. No one could bleach them. It's almost like a it's almost like a laundry detergent commercial, isn't it? It's like, look at how white his clothes are. You know, nobody can get them that white. You know? Well, the fact is, they'd never seen anything like this. The the, the Geneva Bible describes it that he was sparkling. <laughs> Can you imagine? Because we're talking about seeing something that we cannot describe by human terms. His raiment became shining exceeding white as snow so as no fuller on earth can white them. The radiancy of Jesus' garments denotes his splendor and his glory. Note the difference between Moses in Exodus 34 and Jesus here. In Exodus 34, Moses reflects the glory of God. Exodus 34, 29, it says, It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with God. In other words, he was reflecting the radiancy and glory of God in whose presence he was standing. But he was a reflection of the glory of God. God. Jesus is the glory of God. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, we read, He, Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things are hold together Jesus is the glory of God and so he's not reflecting it he's not shining it forth it's coming from within him because he is God he is God and there appeared unto him Elias with Moses and they were talking with Jesus now you have Elijah and Moses um Another account that we didn't read today from the uh, lectionary talks about how Elijah and Elisha went and Elijah took his mantle and he struck the Jordan and the waters parted and they walked and crossed over. So Elijah left the promised land in order to be taken up by God. Moses never entered the promised land because he disobeyed God and God would not allow him. Moses died before The the nation of Israel conquered the promised land. And so now Caesarea Philippi is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And so he's outside of where the original kingdom of Israel was. But this is in Jesus' time, this is still a Jewish uh, populated area. But it's on the other side of the Jordan. He goes there to meet Moses and Elijah. And I find that fascinating. Moses and Elijah, they were talking with Jesus. What were they talking about? They were talking about his mission and his impending death on the cross. Again, in chapter 8, verse 31, you read, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and must be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Verse 34, he says, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. They're talking to him about what he is going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now verse 5. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias, for he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. He didn't know what to say. He hadn't seen anything like this. Uh, You know, you don't wake up in the morning and go, geez, I think I'm going to go and see Jesus and Moses and Elijah today on the mountain. No, that's not what they were planning on doing, but that's what occurred to them and they had no idea how to handle it. Peter's idea here is that he's going to build a temporary dwelling place, for, for one for him, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and that they would stay there and they would bring people up the mountain to see all three of them, right? That's basically what he's saying here. But that's not why Jesus came. That's not why Jesus came. This revelation is not for everyone in in the area it's not for people to come up and gaze upon it's for us as a record it was for the disciples to know about the glory of god in verse seven there was a cloud that overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my beloved son hear him this cloud that overshadows them is also brings to mind moses on sinai In chapter 19 of of Exodus, it says that Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. That's the picture that we're getting from this cloud overshadowing them. The voice comes out of the cloud. There's no doubt as to whom this voice belongs, as to whom this voice belongs. This is God Almighty, the Father, giving witness to, and authority to the Son. He says, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Hear him. It's not just hear him, because guess what? We can hear and not listen. The word that is spoken here is akoete auto. Listen to him. Listen. And and not just listen to him, but like listen you to him. That's what the Greek says, okay? It's a strong imperative. It's a statement from God the Father that he gives to the disciples as a directive to pay attention to what Jesus says. It's authoritative and it gives weight and authority to the words, of Jesus and so you can understand the confusion of someone saying well we need to listen to what Jesus says we don't have to worry about so much what the rest of the Bible says listen we had a, a men's retreat uh, at Pittman United Methodist Church some years ago and <clears throat> um, two of the men uh, let's see one of the men who was in attendance and the pastor who was teaching the lessons for the men's retreat kind of butted heads over this issue because the the gentleman who was in attendance was saying, well, Paul writes this in so-and-so, and the pastor was saying to him, but that's Paul, that's not Jesus. As if to say that Paul's words don't carry as much weight as Jesus' words because that's not Jesus' Every word of the Bible, every word in Scripture is the word of God, inspired, inerrant. I say this all the time. You know, I, I, I get into a lot of trouble whenever I use the word inerrant, right? Um, whenever somebody says to me, what do you believe about the Bible? And it's usually someone who is over me, like the district superintendent or somebody like that or the decom. What do you what do you say about the bible and i say it's inerrant and and they don't like that word right it's a product of man it's 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 full of errors it's full of contradictions show me one show me one show me a contradiction in here i guarantee you everything that you anything that anybody sees as a meme or a five minute video on youtube that explains that there are contradictions in the bible I'm telling you that there are explanations that are very simple, and you don't have to twist things. You really have to twist things to to say that they're contradictions. And so we put our authority in the whole Bible, all of Scripture, the entire canon, all 66 books, and not just the red letters, but we listen to Christ because when we listen to Christ, we're listening to God. This is my beloved Son here him listen you to him now verse 8 and suddenly when they had looked round about they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves the vision is over yet the words still echo in the ears of the disciples the encounter left an indelible mark on the three who were there as we've already seen in Peter's reading And in John's opening, both to his gospel and his first epistle, in John chapter 1, we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. We see God when we see Christ. We see the glory and splendor of God through the revelation of Christ on earth. In 1 John chapter 1, His, his first epistle, He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. That's why the disciples were so intent uh, emphatic about telling people all this that they had seen and heard, and they were willing to die because of the things they had seen and heard. Not because of what somebody told them, not because of somebody, what somebody explained to them, but because of what they saw. They couldn't deny their own perceptions. In verse 9, As he came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. So having already told them that he would die and rise again, he instructs them not to tell anyone what they saw until he rises again from the dead. Now again, we're seeing this on the other side of the resurrection. We know how this story ends okay they didn't they were still living it they hadn't even seen the cross yet but after his resurrection all these things his ministry on earth his atoning sacrifice his conquering of death itself would be manifestly apparent until then even the disciples will not grasp the weight of it note how peter reacts he didn't even understand lord let's build three tabernacles so that everybody can come up here and see you that's not what it's about peter you don't understand it, and you won't until after the resurrection. Now, why does all this matter? Why do we care about what happened to these three disciples? Why do we care that they care? Well, when God tells us to listen to Jesus, he's not instructing us to be red-letter Christians. He's, he's telling us to listen to all the words of God. First of all, we learn that Jesus's words are authoritative. Jesus speaks with authority as the author of scripture. We already saw that in Mark chapter one. They were amazed at his teaching for his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And in Matthew chapter 28, right before he gives the great commission, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, all authority. He has authority over all of it. So he is the authority, we should listen to him. His word's authoritative. Number two, again, Jesus does not contradict scripture. God cannot contradict himself and neither does the word of God contain errors or contradictions. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, declares the true will of God and every word he speaks is the word of God. He might as well start every sentence with, thus saith the Lord, right? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read that all scripture, all scripture, not just the red letters, all of it is inspired by God. That word inspired can also be rendered as God breathed or breathed out by God. The Greek word is theopnoustos. It's the breath of God. It's the very breath of God. That's what scripture is. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, Jesus is authoritative. Jesus does not contradict scripture in this. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. Jesus came to be the atoning sacrifice for us all, but he also taught wherever he went. He demonstrated his authority by the miracles he performed. And now this is very paramount. And, and I, I love that we have so many kids in our church. And I love that we're baptizing Hunter today. I think it's amazing to see, I love to hear the joy of the children as they come into the, into the building, into, into the worship space. We ought to teach these words to our children. We love Christ for what he has done for us, and he will do the same for our children. We need to teach these words diligently to our children so that they will know the love of God in Christ Jesus. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses instructs the people, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These words are so important. The Bible is so important because it is God's love letter to us that says we are sinful and he loves us and he gave his own life for us to reconcile us to himself and to give us life everlasting. Jesus spoke with authority because he is the ultimate authority. God did not give authority to the Son. The Son has the authority of the father and a father testifies to this authority in the reading before us jesus put on drab human garments and walked among us standing shoulder to shoulder with the disciples but in this moment we catch a glimpse of the royal splendor of christ the son of the living god The words of the Father that echo in the ears of the disciples ought to echo in ours as well. Listen to him. Jesus doesn't supersede the Bible. The Bible is his word as much as it is the Father. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And he did so as the perfect and spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we ought to listen to him to read what God has to say to us in the pages of Scripture, to teach these things diligently to our children so that future generations may know the height, the depth, and the breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, we hear your voice echoing in our ears this day. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Yes, And amen, Father, we hear the voice of Jesus and we are mindful of all that he teaches us. And his word, like your word, is not contained merely in the Gospels, but all throughout scriptures. All of this, all of these 66 books that you have given to us to instruct us, to edify us, to make us complete as men and women of God, fill us with the Holy Spirit and instruct us by your word that we may know you more completely, and in knowing you, come to love you and praise you as you are worthy to be praised. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. All this we pray in the mighty and majestic name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope that this teaching has blessed you as much as it has blessed me putting this message together. God has also blessed me by calling me to serve two churches in Salem County, New Jersey, Ebenezer United Methodist Church in Auburn and Hudson United Methodist Church in Patricktown. If you live in the area and don't have a church to call your own, I'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings for a Bible-based and God-honoring worship. Ebenezer meets for worship at 9 a.m. and Hudson meets for worship at 10.30. We also have Sunday school available and Bible study during the week. Now this podcast is self-funded and we never ask for donations. It reaches people all around the world, but it could reach more people if you do a couple of things, and it won't cost you a penny. First, subscribe to the podcast and our YouTube channel. Leave a comment and also like the podcast. That puts the podcast in front of more people so that the gospel may reach them as well. Keep learning, keep growing, and I pray you will listen to Guerrilla Christianity again. Until next time, remember this, Christ died for you. Now go live for Christ.